0: from last week we find that Solomon has written uh, three different books that we know of that are in our scriptures he may have written many more than that chances are he probably did write more books in his lifetime but three that we know of and that we have in our scriptures uh, that the Bible speaks of we have the song of Solomon that he wrote many people believe when he was very young and then we have the Proverbs that he seems to have composed sometime before the book of Ecclesiastes, so probably somewhere towards the middle of his life and his ministry and his career uh, as being king of, uh, of Israel. Uh, we find a little bit later in the book of Ecclesiastes that a reference is made to the compiling of many uh, Proverbs. And so uh, we believe that Ecclesiastes was written after Uh, Proverbs so this is probably the last book that he has written that we have in our Bibles And it's something that he's done looking back on his life And uh, Solomon certainly was a very wise man. We all know the story how that God had come to him and uh, Given him the opportunity to choose whatever it was for God to give to him and he chose for wisdom And became what the world considers to be and many people believe are it was the wisest man in all of the world And in fact, the queen of Sheba came to see him one time and uh, had heard all these things about this king, and she didn't believe him, so she had to make a trip all the way to come see him. And uh, when she came to see him at the end of it, her conclusion was the half had not even been told to her. And so this was a great, great king. Uh, When he was young, he followed after the Lord wholeheartedly and sought after the Lord. And a lot of the great uh, success he had early on in being the ruler of Israel was the uh, fact that he did follow after God. He had a a heart after God and uh, longed to do what was right. But as he got older in uh, the kingship, and as many people do, they grow cold and callous in their lives later on, and he got to a point, at what point we don't know, but prior to the writing of this book, uh, he got to a point where he began to look at life without God and wanted he gave himself to experience everything that the world ...had to experience separate from God. And uh, so we came to this book last week. We dealt with the theme or the title, the subject of the book. And the primary gist of the book is that uh, everything that Solomon tries here without God is vanity. And that's the word that he uses uh, in here numerous times. Over 30 times you'll find this phrase uh, vanity. And many times he adds to it "and vexation of spirit. You'll also find the phrase under the sun quite often and under the sun being that uh, it's dealing uh, with a fallen man or a man who is separate from God or away from God, not doing things according to God's plan. If you're not careful, you'll read the book and you'll begin to think, well, it's a very pessimistic book. It's a very You almost get depressed in reading it uh, because he starts talking about all the vanity that there is in all of these things that he tried and the hopelessness and the uselessness of life. And uh, and he goes on and on about this and keeps uh, dealing with it to the point where people become uh, almost frustrated with it. And uh, he does that for the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book, he begins to make some observations. Uh, and we'll look at those as we get to them. But he begins to talk about the benefits of, uh, of living our life by principle and different things. And he'll give some instruction there and bring some conclusions towards the end of the book. And we'll look at that when we get there. Uh, Last week we began with uh, verse number 1 and 2 as the introduction to the book. And uh, then verse number 3 says, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? My intent last week was to bring out more along the line in the subject and the topic of the unprofitability of these things. And uh, I did not use that phrase very often in the the message uh, and was remiss to do so. But uh, suffice to say that all of these things that uh, Solomon is attempting here and trying are unprofitable too. And we're going to take a little closer look at that tonight as we get down. We got down through verse number 11 uh, as he talks about vanity itself. And then in verse number 12, he begins to tell some of the things that he tries and uh, that are of no profit to him. They are what the Bible refers to here as vanity for him. Uh, and he begins in verse 12, and he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done <coughs> excuse me, under heaven. This sort of hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Father, we come to you and I pray that you'll bless the message tonight, the lesson that we have, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and direct us in all truth. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to glean from this book the intent of what it has for us. Many people, I believe, misunderstand and don't understand this book or why it was written. And we often read it and we feel like it doesn't do a whole lot for our lives, but the truth of the matter is, Lord, there's some very vital truths in here. That if we'll simply understand what Solomon is trying to speak about here, it will help us to avoid many of the pitfalls that affect Christians today and will cause us to keep our eyes and our focus and our gaze upon you. Father, as we live and work and labor and do all that we can to bring honor and glory to your name in this life, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do it, seeking your power and your direction and your wisdom. Father, that your hand would be upon our lives and that there would not be a moment that we attempt to do things outside of your uh, your direction and your guidance and your empowering of us to do it. And so, Father, we pray that you'll bless the lesson as we go through it this evening. Encourage our hearts and strengthen our faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We find here in verse 14 that he says, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and again, the idea being away from God, that, that of fallen man, this is... Uh, living in the physical realm or the physical world without eternity in view. And uh, he says that he beheld all of it is vanity. And then he uses this phrase, (coughs) vexation of spirit. And it's very interesting to me that the two are coupled together so often throughout this book. Uh, It was said of Lot in the uh, New Testament that uh, when he set his gaze towards Sodom and Gomorrah, the way the Bible phrases it, it says that, just Lot vexed his righteous soul from day to day, in seeing and in hearing from day to day, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the idea being that he was a righteous man, a just man at one time, but he allowed some things to happen that were that were detrimental to him, that caused him to depart from what he used to be. And so when, when Solomon writes of these things being done separate from God, Uh, Not only is there an unprofitableness or a vanity about them, but there's also the fact that it is something that is detrimental to a person and actually causes something to, uh, to disappear that used to be there before, something to be destroyed that used to be there, and that is this spirit, this heart. That which is crooked, verse number 15 he says, cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I commune with mine own heart, and this is a key statement at the beginning of this book, Understand that this is not something that God is telling Solomon to do, but this is something that Solomon came up with of his own accord. As he says, he communed with his own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me at Jerusalem. Yea, my heart and, my great ex- and had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. He that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. And again, speaking here of things that are done outside of God. Man's wisdom, if you will. uh, Wisdom that does not come from God, but wisdom that comes from man. Man's knowledge. Uh, We we certainly know that there are, are fallibilities in man, don't we? We understand that tonight. Uh, There was a time when they thought that the earth was flat. Uh, There's a few crazy people out there nowadays still thinking the world is flat uh, or donut shape or something like that. But uh, man's knowledge was fallible. There was a day where we thought that the sun revolved around the earth, and yet man's knowledge was fallible. Uh, There were times that uh, uh, the Bible would say something that dealt with the scientific nature such as psalms in the paths of the sea uh, that were talked about in the ocean currents and men didn't understand that until they were able to map ocean currents and the fact that there are paths in the sea and again man's knowledge was fallible his wisdom his philosophy was fallible. We see that rampantly today. In fact, it's diametrically opposed to the wisdom of God. It's interesting that God chooses, the Bible says, the foolish things of the world to confound the, the, the wise because the wisdom of this world is not to even be compared to the wisdom of God. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Uh, the world will tell you one thing and uh, God will tell you something completely different. For instance, uh, the Bible says that if somebody strikes you on one cheek, you're to what? Turn the other cheek. What does the world say? If somebody strikes you on the cheek, you you clobber him. You punch him out. You get him back. Uh, if a man takes your cloak, uh, the Bible says what? Give him your cloak also. Uh, the Bible says if a man, or the world says if a, if a man takes your coat, what do you do? You go out. You go after him. Absolutely. If a man compelled you to go a mile, you go with him. Twain, two miles. Again. Uh, God's wisdom is completely opposite of the world's wisdom. So what Solomon is getting at here is, we get to verse number 18, he says, for in much wisdom. What wisdom is he talking about here? He's not talking about God's wisdom. He's talking about what kind of wisdom? Man's wisdom, all right? Man's wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth in knowledge. What kind of knowledge are we talking about here? Are we talking about God's knowledge? We're dealing with under the sun now, so this is man's knowledge. Okay, so we have man's knowledge, and the Bible says he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. He goes on to say, I said in my heart, as he began to ponder these things, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. We talked a little bit about this last week. I want to say a few words about it more. Therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is what's the next word here? Vanity, okay? I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainted mine heart with wisdom to lay hold on, what's the next word here? Folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. Now, we live in a society that is uh, amusement mad. I mean, they are addicted to fun. And the sad fact of the matter is it is filtering into our churches, is it not? Our churches, instead of being concerned with having the power of the Holy Spirit on them and preaching the Word of God, they have become a, a church that seeks to entertain, to have something that is appealing and will draw them uh, by uh, not, the, not the, the biblical reasons why it draws men, but from a worldly view of why it would draw men. Uh, the... Um, the entertainment value, the excitement. We had a fellow years ago, a dear friend of mine. Uh, in fact, I probably talk to him still about every three or four months. I'll call him and just talk to him on the phone. But uh, years ago, his family was in our church, and uh, they uh, had a couple of teenage daughters, uh, him and his wife. And uh, they, they wanted a more exciting church. They wanted something that offered more programs. We had a good youth program and uh, uh, junior program in our church, but they wanted a, a bigger church that had more uh, facilities and more programs and things they could do, and they had like swing dancing at this church and uh, different things you could go and do. They had the interpretive dance and the contemporary music bands that they could get involved in and the smoke and the lights and the theatrics and everything. And uh, his family liked that, and so he took his family and went to that church and they attended there for about ten or twelve years. Uh, about uh, fifteen or so years later, I uh, was working with him. I called him, and I needed a, a favor. He was an electrician by trade, and I needed a favor and so he was helping me uh, build some things and I uh, was uh, up on a scaffolding with him one night, uh, late into the night doing wiring some lights and he said, uh, Pastor, can I talk to you for a little bit? And I, I thought, well, if we've been up here three or four days, I, sure, we can talk, you know. Uh, but what he meant was he had something serious to talk about. And I said, sure, we can. I said, let's go uh, over to the office. And so we went over to the office. And uh, I remember seeing him sit there in, my chair across the off- uh, in the chair across the office from me. He said, Brother Greg, the biggest mistake I ever made was taking my kids to that church and my family. He said, when we walked in the door on Sunday morning, my kids went that way, my wife went that way, and I went a different way to the program that we were involved in. He said, I've lost my kids. And he said, now my wife's told me that she wants to leave me. She got involved in a swing dance group at the church, and her partner in the swing dance and her wanted to have an affair. And I uh, I was heartbroken by that. He said, I went to a church because it had all these programs. And he said, the church tore us apart. What was the problem? The problem was they were seeking for mirth. They were seeking for that which would cause laughter and bring some temporary joy to the heart. And really, if you look at it from a world's viewpoint, without God... That seems to be the logical choice, doesn't it? We, we want to enjoy our life. We want to go out here and have fun and have pleasure. And you know, a few weeks ago, we took our teenagers uh, tubing. And just let me tell you something right now, that was not pleasure, nor was it fun. <laughs> but we tried to have fun with it anyway. And there's nothing wrong occasionally with enjoying some things. I believe God wants us to have a time apart from time to time to relax and to enjoy some things. But it ought not to be the pursuit of our lives. And it ought not to be the thing that we're looking at to do the work that God's called us to do. He says, is it wrong to have some kind of a promotion to encourage folks to come to church? I think to do them in taste and in the right way. I think they're fine. We have a friend day every once in a while. We ask our friends to come and we have a meal usually after the service. But we're not asking for them to come so that they can be entertained. We're not asking for him to come so that a chicken dinner can save their soul. We're still going to get him here and we're going to preach the gospel to them. We're not going to have a bunch of songs and dance up here and give them a little feel-good little talk and then send them down to eat. We're going to preach the Bible to them. There's a difference in that. And he said that he had given himself to find this mirth and this laughter and this, uh, this uh, what, the Bible, what the world would refer to as folly And he says, till I might see what was the good for the sons of men which they should do under heaven all the days of their lives. This seemed to be the pursuit. It was the mindset in the days of Noah, was it not, that they were to eat, drink, and be merry? For tomorrow we die, was their philosophy. We were to go out and have fun and do all that we can, and life is short, you might as well make the most of it. And... The world has all of that philosophy about them. And the sad fact of the matter is there are a lot of Christians that sit in the pews of our churches looking at those that are out here trying to have fun in the world and trying to have mirth and thinking that's where the answer is. And a lot of Christians sit there and they envy that. They envy that. When I was in college, I worked with inner city kids, kids whose parents really didn't care. We had a great success with them. We did a Bible club on Saturday nights and run about 110 teenagers or so from the inner city of Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, we'd have a lot of young people come. And we never set the dress code. We never uh, we, we would preach the Bible to them. And we would preach what the Bible says about being saved and about following the Lord and, and, and discipling their life. And we had a discipleship program we took them through. And these kids would come, and it was amazing how many times, and I'm not going to harp on standards tonight, but it was amazing to me how many times, uh, without even saying a word, when a young lady would get saved after two or three weeks, they would come to one of our lady workers and say, do you have something else I can wear? This is all I have. And we never said a word about it. It was just something God did in their hearts. And by the way, God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? young men that would suddenly sh- sh- shape up and clean up and their their language would change. And we wouldn't say a word about that. We would just say the importance of following after God and loving God with all their heart and teach them things from the Bible about that. And they came every week and I thought, man, I, I'm so excited. It was amazing to see. We had a lot of them saved. Uh, in, in uh, that time, about a year and a half or so that we worked with them, there's probably about 15 or 20 of them that went off to a Bible college and are serving the Lord today, married to either pastors or they're, uh, maybe they're a pastor's wife or maybe they're a pastor, maybe they're a Christian school teacher. And, and it's exciting from time to time. I get word of them and what they're doing. And, boy, what a joy it is to my heart. But I remember working with them and the excitement these kids had they had a choice to go anywhere they wanted to go on a Saturday night. If they if they wanted to go to a nightclub with fake IDs, their parents didn't care, they could have done it. But they came to Bible Club. And when I graduated college and I went to a church on staff as a youth pastor, I thought, man, if inner city kids can get this excited about God, I can't wait till I get some kids who's who are raised in Christian homes who love the Lord and their parents have trained them to love the Lord. And I got down there thinking, this is going to be great. We're going to put up a little sign and print my little business card and revival is going to break out. And I got there and those kids were so cold and calloused. I mean, there wasn't a thing we could do to do anything for about two or three years. It seemed like they just had no desire for the things of the Lord. In fact, what I ended up finding was, they were looking at the world and saying, boy, I wish I could be there. And for a long time I thought about that, and I, for several years I, I, I was confused. I thought, Lord, why is that? Why were these inner city kids who had been uh, down in the dump I mean, they had been about as far as you could go. Why were they so excited? And yet here we have kids that were raised in Christian homes who lo- whose parents loved the Lord and took them to church and had them in Sunday school and had them in the youth programs, and they don't care about God. What's, what's the problem here? And one thing I found after several years is there had been a group of kids that I worked with who had gone down the road of mirth and pleasure and they found out that's not the answer. And they turned around and said, we want what the answer is. And then I had a bunch of kids over here who were looking at the world saying, boy, I want what they've got, that mirth and pleasure, not realizing that's not where the answer was. And Solomon said he had given his heart to give unto wine and to acquaint his heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men. In verse number 1 he said this also is vanity. If you ever get to the place where you start looking at the world and saying the grass is greener over there, can you mark it down from Solomon? Just go ahead and put put it down. It's vanity. It's vanity. You see, a smart person will learn from his mistakes, but a wise person will learn from somebody else's mistakes. And here's a man who had every opportunity to do everything he could, and there was not anything. In fact, he makes the statement that there was nothing that that was able to be done under heaven that he did not experience. And he's saying, it's vanity. It's vanity. Don't go there. Don't think the grass is greener. Vanity. Then he begins in verse number four. He says, "I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchid, or orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. And I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and, uh, and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me." I gathered me also silver and gold, a peculiar treasure of kings and of the providences. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and all the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was what? Vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. He said, I tried to do everything that my hands could do. I tried to work hard. And by the way, let me just say this. There's nothing wrong with working hard. And you ought to learn, you ought to teach young people to work hard. Amen. There ought to be a work ethic. Those of us that are older look at this generation coming up behind us, think, "Wow, what's going on here?" Uh, you know, I, we all, we can all give stories. And the the older we get, the more more difficult our stories became. You know, uh, I used to have to drive a tractor when I was eight years old. But the older I get, the the bigger that tractor was, the harder it was to start harder it was to drive, I had to push it uphill in Florida. If you know Florida, it doesn't have any hills. <laughs> but we learned to work when we were younger. And I know it's easy for us to criticize this next generation because I think a lot of them don't have a work ethic. But the truth of the matter is it's our fault, isn't it? We're the ones that didn't teach them. And uh, we can gripe about them all we want to. Nothing wrong with hard work. And teach them to do hard work. But if you think that hard work is where the answer is, and here's the mindset of the world, get all you can, can what you get, and then sit on the can, don't let anybody have it. You're going to work hard, you're going to get all this money, you're going to put it into a savings account, you're going to put it into a retirement fund, you're going to put it into investments, and you're going to pile this stuff up. And then don't give any of it away. Don't you let anybody have it. That's what the world says. Without God, it's it's vanity and vexation of spirit. Hold your finger here for a minute. Turn with me to the book of... um, Turn to Haggai. Let's let's go there first. The book of Haggai. Haggai chapter number 1. In Haggai, the prophet Haggai has been uh, told by the Lord to go to the nation of Israel. Israel had rebuilt the walls of the temple, they had rebuilt the, foundation of the walls of Jerusalem, they had rebuilt the foundation of the temple in Jerusalem, but they stopped work after they got the foundation laid, and for several years uh, it laid dormant, while they all went and turned and went to their own houses. And the Bible says here, in verse number 3 of chapter 1, "...then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, "'Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste?' Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have so much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. They began to work on what was important to them. They began to put God on the back burner and say, We're going to labor for what we want. And that's where the answer is. That's where my financial security is. That's where the joy of my life is going to be in things. And God tells Haggai to tell the people of Israel, at least, that that's not where it is. You labor much, you bring home little. You earn a wage, and it's like putting it into a bag with holes. It just seems to go go away about as fast as you can put it in. Look with me, if you will, over to the book of Philippians, chapter number 3. Philippians, chapter number 3. I love this about the Apostle Paul. Paul Paul was a a pretty peculiar man in a lot of ways. He thought one way before he got saved, and after he got saved, there was a drastic change in him, wasn't there? I I mean, we're talking about a 180-degree turn. And here Paul is, is, he had been raised in, in what we consider to be a fairly wealthy family at the time, judging from who, he was, uh, who was his tutor, Gamaliel, who was one of the sought-after tutors and teachers of the day, who he had sat under his feet in tutorage and been able to learn things. Uh, he had been uh, uh, given Roman citizenship, which means that probably more than likely his family bought that Roman citizenship. And uh, so there, here's a young man that pretty well had everything going for him. He, he lived uh, pretty much the life of Riley, if you would. He just kind of had uh, all things working well for him, and he had his mind made up and his belief system made up. He had his life laid out before him. He had a purpose of what he was going to do, and that was to go around and hunt down Christians for being heretics and putting them to death or throwing them in the prisons and beating them, and God saves him miraculously. What a miracle. And by the way, let me just say this. You don't have to be an apostle Paul for it to be a miracle when you get saved. The minute you get saved, it's a miracle. You've been passed from death unto life. You've gone from being eternally condemned to hell to being eternally secure in heaven. And that's a miracle. But Paul was an amazing fella, and his viewpoint changed when God told him on the road to Damascus, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? Immediately his attitude changed. Now he's saying, I don't care who it is that's talking to me right now, but he's my Lord. And I'm going to do whatever it is that he says. We find here as we get to Philippians chapter number 3, he says in verse number 7, But what things were, what's the word here? Gain to me those I counted loss for. So he has two, we have two, two things here that are being contrasted. Things that Paul considered to be gain for him and the things that were a loss for Christ. Now look what he says in verse number 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung. We could say Paul thought they were vain. It was vanity. There was no profit to them. No substance to them. There's nothing that's there to benefit him because the only thing that benefited him, the only thing that was a profit to him was the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Look at Revelation 3 for a minute. And I think we'll probably end here on this one. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 14, the Bible is writing here, or God is uh, writing here seven letters to seven churches. And comes to the church of Laodicea in verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things. Sayeth the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would thou work cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest. And I want you to notice what they said. What their philosophy was. What their feelings were in this church. What their mindset was they thought i am rich and increased with good sounds like materialism to me doesn't it and have need of nothing and god takes that mindset and he flips it on end what was the one thing this church needed above all they needed god This is the kind of church that sits there and it doesn't matter how strong the preacher preaches or how much the Holy Spirit seems to be moving in the preaching of the Word of God. This is the kind of church that sits back and they sit there without any conscience at all saying, boy, I'll tell you what, preacher, that's a great message and I'll tell you, there are some people out there that really need that message. Because we have the mindset more more often than not that the biggest sinner out there is the other person. The greatest sins that there are are the sins that other people have. They're not mine. And that's the mindset this church had. And they said, We are rich, we're increased with goods. We've got a $57 million plane for our pastor. We've got a large auditorium and great acreage and beautiful facilities. We've got the big jumbotron in the middle of the, uh, of the thing. We've got the big uh, speakers and lighting. We've got the choir that sounds beautiful and heavenly. We've got all these instruments playing in a full orchestra. And we have need of nothing but God. And he says, knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. What's he saying? He said, I want you to go out there and get things that have me included in them. These things that are for me and for my glory. I want you to go out there and get those things. Then you'll have gold that's tried in the fire. And then you'll truly be rich. I was talking with a young man just this week. And I said, you know, life is, life is pretty short. We, we know that. As we get older, the shorter life seems to be too, isn't it? We, we start looking at how many days we have left instead of how many days we've already been alive. And life is over all too soon. And then what? And then eternity. And it's amazing to me how often even God's people many times get so focused on saving up, gathering things. There's there's nothing wrong with being financially wise and, and smart. I believe that God wants us to but people who just make it their life's ambition to hoard as much as they can get i mean they just they they want nothing more than to be the richest man in the world to be the most popular person in all the world and that's their lifelong ambition for for this this little bit of time only to lose it all for eternity jesus was teaching and he said and i, and I can't quote it exactly but along the lines of If you want to gain your life, you need to lose it. If you're willing to lose your life, you'll get to keep it. I believe it was Jim Elliott that made the statement, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And Solomon comes to this realization finally. As wise a man as he was, you'd think, why didn't he know this before he tried it? But no, he had to go try it. Any of you know anybody else like that? (laughs) Somebody can tell me all day long, but sometimes I just got to try it and make sure that they're telling me right. And Solomon did this. He said, I'm going to go out here I'm going to try these things. And he got to them and he realized they were all vanity and vexation of spirit because he tried them without God. And you ever bump into somebody who says, well, I don't understand why I should do anything. You know, my life's doing well. Take them to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Show them what the wisest man in the world did, what he had to say. All right, let's stand. We'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for your word. I pray that you'll bless it and use it. Father, in our hearts, I pray that you'd help us to not look at the world and think that they... Uh, have greener grass, that we don't look at their prosperity from a worldly view and envy it and long to have the same things they do. Lord, we realize the end of the matter. The end of the matter is it's all vanity. It's all vexation of spirit. Father, I pray that you would help us to know these things, to be secure in them. And Father, that our lifelong pursuit will be only of things that would pertain to you. That we would do things that we can do to lay up treasures in heaven while we're here on this life. And so, Father, help us and aid us to have the wisdom and discernment, the ability to make right choices in this area. That we would be able to have fruit to show in the eternity. That we would have rewards and we would have treasure to lay up in heaven. Dismiss us now with your blessings, we pray in Jesus' name.